welcome everyone to the uh, London Aesthetics Forum. Uh, I'd first like to thank uh, Senate House, the British Society of Aesthetics and the Institute of Philosophy for making these events possible and thank you all for being here. Today we're going to uh, hear a talk from Christopher Early, um, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the British Society of Aesthetics and the University of Liverpool. Great, okay. Um, well, uh, thank you so much um, to the London Aesthetics Forum for inviting me. I've been coming to these for like, several years as an audience member, so it's nice to be on the other side. Um, so what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about learning from art and the role that this plays in our practices of art appreciation. Specifically, I want to talk about a particular way in which we learn from art that I'm going to call insight through art. And I'm going to begin by contrasting this with another way in which we can learn from art that I'll call insight in art. And the key point of distinction here is that when we engage in insight through art, for audiences to arrive at insights, for them to gain knowledge, understanding, improved degrees of belief, in your favorite epistemic success term here, audiences have to do a lot of work for themselves. They have to display a higher degree of epistemic autonomy and creativity than they have to do when they engage in insight in art. So I think insight through art is quite common. I'll try and show this with a couple of examples. However, some philosophers have posed some problems for insight through art. The main problem being that it doesn't seem to line up with the sorts of goals that Anglo-American philosophers, and I'm going to be kind of staying within a pretty Anglo-American framework here, Anglo-American philosophers have assigned for art appreciation. The big worry is that when we engage in insight through art, audiences end up focusing a bit too much on themselves and not enough on what the artwork is actually achieving. So I'm going to try and push back against this, and to do this, I'm going to suggest that when we engage in insight through art, audiences enter into collaboration with artworks. They work together to co-produce insights, and they can share the credit for these insights. So that's what I'm going to try and do here today. So to begin to get this particular way of learning from art into focus, I'll begin with a couple of examples. Um, so here's what I think to be uh, a fairly common experience we have with art. You go to an art gallery, you read a novel, you go to the cinema or to the theatre and you engage with an artwork, you look at its details, try and interpret it, and then you leave the art gallery, you put down the novel, the play or film ends and you go out to the wider world and you see the world around you in a new and improved light. So perhaps you go and see Monet's paintings of his gardens at Giverny, and then when you're walking around the woods, or you're out in the park, or you're looking at your own garden, you see all kinds of aesthetic details that you didn't see before, even though you're looking at perhaps quite a different visual array. So you gain some sort of aesthetic knowledge about the wider world. Or perhaps you have been reading Elena Ferrante's My Brilliant Friend, and you put it down and you reflect upon your own friendships. Now, those might have quite different narratives to them, 
But after reading this novel, you might understand certain things about your friendships, the different paths you and your friend have taken, how you've converged or diverged in your interests, how you've grown over time, how things might have changed. Or, and this is an example that I think is particularly common in this country and perhaps also in the US, there's an entire kind of literary critical cottage industry of taking plays by Shakespeare and reflecting upon how they might help us better understand contemporary political events. So this is just a little quote from Stephen Greenblatt, the literary critic and leading Renaissance scholar. And he suggests that we can look at Richard III, and this can improve our understanding of the 2016 US election. So in his interpretation, he thinks that in Richard III, Shakespeare presents a tyrant who rises to power not just on his own back, but with the help of a lot of other people aiding and abetting him, both his allies and his enemies. We get a kind of a taxonomy of enablement in this play. And Greenblatt suggests that when we can grasp this, we can then look at the 2016 US election and we can perhaps better understand how Donald Trump became president of the US. So, in all these cases, I think we are learning from art. Our intellectual epistemic standing is improving because of our engagements with artworks. However, I think this is a particular, a, a distinct form of learning from an artwork. So here, I'm going to bring in these two ideas, insight in art and insight through art. I think only one of these captures what's going on in these cases. I wonder which one it would be. Okay, so insight in art. So if we want to uh, understand how we learn from art, one intuitive way we might think about this is we might think, okay, artworks contain insight. So perhaps an artist came to know something about the world or understand something, and then they made an artwork which they hoped would convey this knowledge or this understanding to a wider audience. Now, of course, it's never quite as straightforward as that. When making art, sometimes the insights will come during the process of making. But the basic idea here is that for audiences to learn from the artwork, they have to attempt to work out what these insights are. Now this takes a lot of interpretive and appreciative labour from audiences. Artworks don't make it obvious for us, but once audiences manage to work this out, and here's the important part, they credit artworks with realising these insights. Okay? So the audiences, it's not them who have done it. They haven't arrived at this knowledge all on their own. Rather, they've managed to get themselves into the right position to apprehend exactly what the artwork's epistemic achievements are. So this is one way of thinking about how we learn from art, and this has been quite popular for some philosophers working on this issue of how we learn from art. However, I don't think this quite describes what's going on in the kinds of cases I'm interested in. And the reason for this is, to greater or lesser degrees, in the kind of cases I'm interested in when we move from an artwork to the wider world, there is sometimes a gap between what the artwork actually conveys to us, what it represents, what it is trying to communicate, and the particular insights that we arrive at. So Monet did not paint paintings of our own gardens or of the parks nearby our houses. 
what we're seeing is quite different visual details that might sometimes be really quite different from what Monet presented to us. Our own friendships take very different courses to the very specific narrative of friendship that Elena Ferrante gives us, which takes place in a really specific historical context with all kinds of specific contributing factors to how this friendship goes. And I think this is written most clearly in this case with Shakespeare. Greenblatt's suggesting that we can look at this play that's about medieval politics that was written in this Elizabethan context, and we can move from that to insights about a political situation over 400 years later in a country and democratic system that didn't even exist when Shakespeare was writing. So we have these gaps between what the artwork is actually presenting to us and the actual insights that audiences are arriving at. It doesn't seem to me, in like in these cases, we can say that the artwork has just handed over knowledge to us and we're just apprehending that. Rather, I think in these cases, audiences are engaging in what I'm going to call insight through art. So, in insight through art, artworks provide audiences not with wholesale insights, not just conveying knowledge, conveying an understanding of something, but rather with open-ended prompts which audiences can use to inquire into the world in certain ways. Okay? So the expectation here is that to respond to the artwork, audiences have to do a little more legwork for themselves. They respond by extending, translating, or otherwise transforming what the artwork offers them in order to arrive at insights. So to actually come to learn about all these things that the artwork doesn't specifically represent to the audience, the audience has to bring their own cognitive skills to bear, they have to bring their own background knowledge into the course of inquiry in order to arrive at these insights. Now, because audiences actually sometimes have to do quite a lot of work here, I think in these cases, we can give audiences some credit for achieving the insights. It's not just the artwork that's done all the work. Here, audiences aren't just apprehending what's going on, they are participating in originating the insights. So, within philosophy of art, I think this is getting a lot of accounts which are trying to understand how we learn from art that seem to be tending more in the direction of insight through art than in the direction of insight in art. Stop my own PowerPoint presentation. Great. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. So, um, here's a couple of ideas of what it might take to prompt an audience that have uh, arisen in, in, in the literature. And all of these have been put forward to respond to one big issue. Often it doesn't seem like artworks are really in the business of trying to convey knowledge or truths to us at all. Instead, they're trying to improve our cognitive standing in other ways. So here's one idea. Artworks go to work on the information we already have access to, and instead emphasize things to us. So they show us the significance of some, some significance of some piece of information that might have been peripheral to our understanding of some phenomenon. They say, notice this as you go forth with inquiry, or perhaps they show us how two pieces of information might be connected that we didn't see were connected before, or perhaps they might take a whole load of pieces of information and put them all in the same category to show us how they might have similarities to each other. 
Now, art books then don't necessarily draw out what the epistemic consequences of noticing some property or set of properties or relation between things might be. That falls to the audience. Artworks often just say, notice this and see how that's going to affect your commitments. Here's another idea. Uh, and this is uh, especially popular uh, for philosophers looking at literary artworks. The idea is that artworks don't provide us with fully justified uh, arguments, fully, um, uh, they provide us more with live hypotheses, and audiences are then invited to go out into the world and try and prove these hypotheses, or disprove them, to find what evidence might confirm the hypothesis to assess this evidence to compare the hypotheses and literary works with other hypotheses that might be out there. To use quite a nice phrase from Peter Kirby, he suggests that audiences are kind of employed as uh, participants in the laboratory of fictional truth. They have to work with the artwork in order to try and arrive at insights. Finally, quite a common idea, Artworks present us with ambiguities. They present us with questions. They present us with problems. Now, some philosophers, Ivan John, Yuka Mikkonen, have attempted to argue that actually we can learn from being confronted with a question or an ambiguity. Now, you might think that looks like the opposite of learning. If you're just being confronted with ambiguities or questions, you're moving backwards from arriving at insights. Your cognitive standing is maybe getting less secure. But what John and McConan um, want to suggest is that when we're confronted with an ambiguity or a question that we really have to take seriously, that might show us that our current conceptual schemes, our current information is lacking, that we need to do some more work in order to try and get ourselves back on the right path. However, artworks are rarely in the business of answering their own ambiguities, of providing us answers to the questions they pose. That task falls to audiences. Again, audiences are being asked to do a little more on their own in order to arrive at insights. Okay, so we have insight in art, we have insight through art. Now I think, I'm just trying to draw a distinction here, these are not opposed in any way, these are just two ways in which we can learn from art, sometimes one and the same artwork might both give us insights in art and then also give us open-ended prompts in another part of the artwork. However, it would be nice if we could just end here and I could just give you a nice distinction, but we need a little drama here. So there are some problems that can be raised with insight through art. And the problem, as I've already suggested, is that insight through art doesn't seem like an appropriate way to go about actually appreciating an artwork. So why might you think that? So here it's useful to take a step backwards. So all these different philosophers who I've cited in these debates are taking place within a broader research project known as cognitivism within the philosophy of art. Not to be confused with cognitivism and other areas of philosophy. So cognitivists in the philosophy of art try to answer two questions. So first, there is this epistemic question. How do artworks improve our epistemic standing? Second, there is this value question. Does an artwork's cognitive value contribute to its value qua art? Okay, so 
I've laid out a set of positions which suggest some interesting, promising answers to this epistemic question. Now, of course, more work would need to be done to take on all kinds of skeptical challenges that can be run against this. That's not what I'm going to try and do here. I'm just going to work with the assumption that all these different answers I've considered are going in the right direction, that we can learn from art. Now, that gets us on the way to answering the value question. We have to have an answer to the epistemic question if we want to answer this value question. But the value question does something distinct. It says, okay, we can learn from art. We can learn from all kinds of things. We can learn from a scientific research article. We can learn from a piece of investigative journalism. We can learn by just attaining perceptual information. So is there anything distinct about the cognitive value of an artwork that helps us to appreciate it as a distinctly artistic artifact? Or the fact that we can learn from art is that entirely unremarkable when we're trying to appreciate this thing in the distinct ways in which we try to appreciate artworks. So the problem is that insight through art, it appears, might not help us answer the value question, whereas critics want to say insight in art allows us to answer both questions. So, how do we get to this? Well, I think it's going to be useful to go a bit further into how we actually work out whether something's valuable as art or not, to try and fill in what this might mean. And I'm going to rely on, on this account um, here. So, this is an account that I think is 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 gaining some popularity. It's been put forward by people like Jonathan Gilmore and Noel Carroll. And they propose that when we're trying to work out if something is valuable as art, we want to try and answer these three questions. So the first question is, we want to answer, what is the artwork trying to do? So we take it that artworks are artifacts, they're designed to have some kind of purpose this is often how we talk about them in critical discourse as trying to do things. So we want to work out, well, what is it the artwork is trying to do? Now, there's all kinds of different answers to how exactly we fix the function of artwork. So Noel Carroll likes to suggest, well, it's just an artist's intentions. Uh, a lot of people are not quite happy about strongly intentionalist views of, of, of art and, and how we fix its functions. So you might prefer something more like, well, being in certain categories and genres might lend artwork certain functions, right? Something's regarded as being a horror film. Well, we assume it has the function of trying to create fear in its audience. Okay, so that's the first question. Second question, has the artwork managed to non-accidentally succeed in doing this, the thing it's setting out to do, with the distinctly artistic means it employs? Okay, a couple of things to unpack here. So first, well, if we think the artwork has some sort of function, it's trying to do something, we can ask questions, well, has it managed to do that? Or did it somehow fail to do what it set out to do? There can be failed artworks. We're not interested in the failed artworks. We're also interested in it succeeding in the right kind of way. So the way I'm understanding this is that it's non-accidental, so it's not just luck, and that it is non-accidental because it has employed distinctly artistic means to pursue and realize whatever function it's trying to pursue. Now, big question here. What makes a means distinctly artistic? I'm not going to answer that. That's not my job here today. But let me give you some ideas that are all very question-begging. So distinctly artistic means here I'm thinking about utilizing 
uh, artistic media, distinctly artistic media, or perhaps it could be using distinctly artistic modes of communication and rhetoric, or it could be, you know, uh, using certain genre conventions to pursue these uh, these functions. Now that is begging the question, but as I said, not the thing I'm trying to answer here. Hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea of just some things to try and fill in what that might be. Okay, finally, we want to ask, if the artwork is successful, if it's not a failed artwork, are the outcomes the artwork has managed to realize actually valuable, or as Noel says, in, uh, as Carol says, in the grand scheme of things. So how I understand it is sort of the first two questions we're trying to answer, is this a candidate for being good or bad as art? And then when we turn to asking actually what's the value of what the artworks managed to do, then we are really trying to decide, okay, is it good as art or bad as art. So say it set out to have some sort of cognitive effects on its audience, it managed to do that using its distinctly artistic means. Well, if an artwork managed to learn, and that's what the artwork was trying to do, then we could say, yeah, it's not just good cognitively, it's good as art. That's the view here. Um, so just a couple things to like about this view that I just want to point out. One thing that's quite nice about it, especially for cognitivists, is this view leaves open what kind of values art might pursue. It pursue aesthetic value, moral value, cognitive value, even maybe economic value. It also leaves open what functions art might have. It's not trying to say here's the function of art, it's just trying to say art has functions and we're interested in working out how these functions come into being uh, and how we assess these functions and their relation to the ends the artwork actually manages to get to. Here's like a short version of everything I've just said, perhaps. Art appreciation tracks artistic achievements. So we're interested in how the artwork has managed to set out to do things and manipulate the materials it uses in a skilled way to actually arrive at certain ends that we take to be valuable. Okay, that's the view of art appreciation that I'm gonna set in place. And with this in place, we can now see that there's gonna be some problems that insight through art. So, I'm taking these problems from the work of uh, John Gibson, who today is my nemesis. Uh, he's, I think he's a very nice person, but today, um, so, uh, two objections I'm gonna consider. Here's the first one, the wrong achievement objection. So, Gibson's big worry about insight through art is this. If art uh, is this, I point in the wrong direction if I gesture towards myself instead of artworks when specifying the site of cognitive insight and discovery. So I take that the worry here is something like this. The defender of insight through art, if they want to explain how these cognitively valuable insights have been achieved, has to refer to what the audience does in order to explain how these insights have come about. They have to say, well, the audience had to step in at a certain point, use their particular skills, employ their background knowledge in order to kind of make up the gap between the artwork and the thing they are trying to investigate. What's strange here is that in order to explain what's cognitively valuable about the artwork, we're referring to what the audience does. But the whole view of artistic value I just gave you suggests that we have to instead focus on what the artwork is trying to do and how the artwork has managed to do it. So the worry is that we risk ignoring what artworks have managed to achieve on their own. And that's one of the main goals of art appreciation. We're not interested in us 
as audiences, not audience of appreciation, it's art appreciation. So that's one worry that Gibson puts forward. However, he perceives a second, perhaps even bigger worry. I'm going to call this the no achievement objection. So he says, if literary texts offer suggestions, and here for literary texts, just understand artworks in general, I think this account generalizes. If artworks offer suggestions, if they whisper possibilities and hint at new ways of approaching reality, i.e., if they just offer us prompts, on this indirect model, it will always be the world that answers and never the literary work. So Gibson is a little bit obscure about what he means by answers, but here's one way of understanding what he might mean. Um, answers could just simply mean bringing inquiry to a close. Now I take it within epistemology, we often assume that the kind of paradigm epistemic achievement, or in fact perhaps the epistemic achievement, is bringing inquiry to a close, is arriving at knowledge or understanding, something like that. So if that's a kind of paradigm achievement, if that's something that's really cognitively valuable, then audiences have to go beyond whatever the artwork presents to realize this achievement on this insight through art view I'm talking about. They're the ones who bring inquiry to a close, not the artwork. The artwork just sort of offers prompts, gestures for us to go in certain directions. So since the artwork falls short of this achievement on its own, its whispered possibilities may not count as any serious cognitive achievement at all. We look back at the artwork and we go, well, I don't know, I mean, it's sort of said, look at this, or it's asked a question, but it's the audience who have had to do the hard cognitive work to answer the question, to do the legwork, to actually arrive at insights and bring inquiry to some sort of stopping point. Okay, so with these two objections in place, Gibson makes the following proposal. He suggests that all cognitivists should adopt a textual constraint, which is, if a certain point or insight is not in the work, we cannot claim to have learned that point from the work. So the idea here is that we should prefer insights in art. This gives us everything we want in art appreciation. It gets us to focus on what the artwork's done. We're not interested in what we as audiences are doing. We're just trying to apprehend the artwork's insights Insight through art, there's too much audience in there. They're doing too much of the heavy lifting. Okay, so if Gibson is right, uh, I think we should be pretty worried. So insight through art seems to a lot of audiences, professional art critics and philosophers of art, to not just be a way to learn from art, but a way to grasp what's really interesting and praiseworthy about artworks, what's so great about Shakespeare, what's well, not just the truths contained in his work, but the way he can allow us to explore all different aspects of the world, far beyond what might have been apparent to him in his own particular historical context. So I'm gonna try and push against these objections and find a way to marry insight through art with our goals in art appreciation as I've laid them out here. And the way I'm gonna try and do this is I would suggest that these problems only arise if we assume that insights or cognitive achievements are something that only the audience can be uh, the ones who achieve, or only 
the artwork. I want to instead suggest that multiple parties can be involved in realising achievements and that the credit for these achievements can be shared. So I'm taking this idea from what I take to be just the central insight of social epistemology. So epistemology for a long time, especially unfortunately in the Anglo-American tradition, focused a lot on individuals, on how an individual can come to know things about the world, on how their beliefs become justified, on how they change their position. And the big uh, thing that social epistemologists have tried to bring into focus is that often the knowledge or understanding we have of the world is strongly dependent upon other people that we encounter. We are told things by other people. Other people correct our reasoning. Other people show us evidence that we didn't have access to before. In fact, in a lot of contexts, it's not just us on our own who's managed to arrive at insights. It's us in a community with other inquirers. Now, I think this is written particularly clearly when we look at the natural sciences. So epistemologists, we love looking at the natural sciences because they give us evidence of our most sort of successful epistemic enterprise. And when we look at mature contemporary science, we see that it's not incredibly common for scientists to pursue research projects completely on their own. Instead, they often form into research teams collaborating with others in order to arrive at insights. So why might scientists want to work with other people? Well, you get lots of additional friends, you get to sort of sit in cool rooms like this, looking at models all together, but we're cognitively limited beings. We only have access to so much information, so much processing power in our own brains, uh, and we also have specific skills, and especially in contemporary sciences, often hyper-specific skills. So sometimes these are fit for the task at hand, but at other times, these might be limitations that stand in the way of us being able to achieve our goals, our own limitations. A way to offset those limitations is to work with other people who do not have those limitations. So you pool your epistemic labor together, inquire together, and you can achieve goals that might be hard or even impossible for you to achieve if you were just working on your own. Now, I think because this sort of collaborative, co-produced epistemic labor is so common in the sciences, when we try to explain the epistemic achievements of a research team, if we were to just pull out any one member of that research team and just look at what they did and only use their contributions to try and explain the particular insights that have been achieved by the group, we would get a pretty incomplete explanation. At some point, we're going to run up against points where they say, well, I had to depend upon what somebody else did. They had to bring their skills to bear. They had to bring certain information that I did not have. And at these points, I think we realize that we have to look at the collective rather than these individuals if we really want to explain these epistemic achievements. Uh, another observation is that again, within contemporary mature science. It's common for research teams, when they publish results, to credit not just the lead investigator, say, but to distribute credit across all those contributors who actually made a difference to that insight being achieved. So credit is not just given to one party, credit is distributed across the group. 
These are insights, cognitive achievements, and the work of many hands. So, co-production takes place in sciences, I think it takes place in other domains to greater or lesser extent. And I would suggest that we should view insight through art as also an instance of co-production. Audiences are entering into co-production with an artwork. So they are responding to the prompts the artwork is offering them. And often, I think what feels so novel or illuminating about our engagements with artworks and the feeling that we get when we look out at the world and we see it differently, what's going on there, I think, is that artworks have provided us with ways to inquire that might not have been available to us before our encounter with the artwork. Indeed, in some cases, they might be ways of inquiring, ways of looking at the world that would not have been available to us at all had we not encountered the artwork. In these situations, we are dependent upon what the artwork is providing to us. So I think this starts to provide us, if this way of framing things is right, it starts to provide us with some ways of pushing against Gibson's objections. But let me just set one more idea in place. So you might look at this and you, you, you might well say, okay, lots of people make all kinds of contributions to these long extended processes of inquiry, but perhaps the only people who really co-produce insights are those people like right at the end of the process of inquiry who manage to actually bring it to a close. They're the ones who are the co-production, and then all the people making sort of upstream contributions who don't themselves might not themselves ever even see the fruits of their contributions, the insights that they managed to achieve, well, they are not really part of the co-production. I want to push against this idea. I think often these people who make upstream contributions often deserve quite a lot of credit for their contributions to the actual achievements of the insight. So here, think of an analogy to football. Now, I don't know very much about football, so I might be wrong here. Football's a team game. Right? Okay, that, 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 okay, not that right. So football's a team game, people are scoring goals, uh, many members of the team have to contribute to, for that goal to be scored. Now, sometimes we give a lot of praise to the one player who managed to score the goal, right? They get most of the praise, we don't always praise the whole team. However, sometimes a lot of the praise goes to a supporting player who might have had to do a lot of really difficult work, get past lots of defenders, get to a particularly difficult angle, get across to a player who just happened to get themselves into the right place to knock the ball into the goal. So there, the supporting player is doing a huge amount of work and the person who has got the ball into the goal has to do relatively little. I think in these kind of cases, at least from the vague knowledge of football I have, it's not uncommon to allow both parties to get quite a bit of credit for that particular achievement. So, if arriving at insights is like scoring a goal, then I think there can be cases where in these co-productions, people who do this support work can get a lot of credit, perhaps even more credit than just the one party who manages to actually bring inquiry to a close. So here's one way to think about this, I'm thinking about questions here, a nice quote from James Baldwin. This Baldwin quote is often rendered incorrectly, where it's rendered that, that he's saying that the function of art is questions, um, uh, exposing the question the answer hides. Uh, so that's the correct quote, but basically I did. Artworks, they ask us questions, that's one of the key ways we learn from them. So here I'm drawing from John Dewey, and John Dewey's uh, view of inquiry. 
So Dewey thinks that inquiry begins with confusion. We're at a point where suddenly our conceptual schemes don't work anymore. Suddenly the knowledge that we had is not sufficient to the phenomena we're encountering. That's what inquiry begins. But he suggests this is quite a shaky stage of inquiry. It's possible to get stuck at that stage. It can be paralyzing. You don't quite know what's going. You're in a crisis state. You might just want to run back to your comfortable former views of the world, which are entirely incorrect, but very comfortable. And he suggests that to actually get on the road to inquiry, one of the biggest contributions we make is asking a question or framing a problem. We'll take this to be interchangeable. And the reason for this is twofold. So firstly, when we ask a question, we try to work out, well, why are we confused? What is the actual nature of our confusion? What features of the world are creating the confusion? What features of our own uh, cognitive systems have fallen into disrepair? So we are clarifying the contributing factors to our conclusion. We haven't necessarily solved the problem yet, but we've delimited what exactly is going on, why we might be confused. And then with a question, we can not just prompt ourselves to start to inquire and to get on with the work, but actually a question does a lot of work to constrain the future of inquiry. So Dewey puts the point like this, the way in which the problem is conceived decides what specific suggestions are entertained and which are dismissed, what data is selected and which rejected. Is the criterion for relevancy and irrelevancy of hypotheses and conceptual structures? So armed with a good question, we might suddenly begin inquiring and notice things that we did not notice before. We can produce answers and then assess these answers and say, well, do these actually respond to the specific terms of the question that we've laid out? So questions don't just get us moving in the inquiry. In fact, I think they do a lot of work to constrain the future path of inquiry. Now, when we engage in group inquiry, one thing we do to each other is ask questions. And sometimes, some people's only contribution to inquiry, especially in a room full of philosophers, we love to think this, our contribution to inquiry is asking really good questions. Because questions don't just kind of produce confusion, rather they're ways of resolving confusion and setting the agenda for a research project. And Dewey was very fond of the idea that a well-posed question might bring us pretty close towards the end of inquiry. Sometimes with a good question that's really laid out path of inquiry, it's only a few moves to give an answer. That was Dewey's view. So, further idea here. Um, questioning can be done better or worse. You can be a bad questioner. So you could ask questions that identify the wrong factors to try and analyze the confusion, that a question is way too tight or is way too open such that any answer would respond to it. So it's a skill that one has to work at and we make distinctions between bad questioners and good questioners. What I'm trying to get at here is that if an artwork prompts us by posing a really good question, this is something that takes significant epistemic labor and can make a significant contribution to the course of our inquiry. Okay, so with these two ideas, this view of co-production, this account of questioning in hand, and sort of a bit of a promissory note here, focus on questions. My hope is that other accounts similar to this could be built for things like offering an emphasis, producing a hypothesis, things like this. I think we can start to push back against Gibson's objections. So, 
With this view of co-production, against the wrong achievement objection, we can say that we cannot explain audiences' cognitive achievements without referring to the artwork's contributions. In these cases, we're engaging in insight through art. The fault that uh, Gibson, I think, has fallen into is thinking that that's what we do. And I would say that's not going to give us any kind of explanation of how the audience has arrived at the insights they've arrived at and what exactly their contribution has been. We would overstate the audience's contribution if we only focused on what they do. So, against the no achievement objection, I want to suggest that it can be a skill to craft a prompt that encourages and productively constrains inquiry. This is not a negligible contribution to the process of inquiry, as Gibson seems to think it might be on this co-production view, we can see that this could be a huge contribution to inquiry, and then what the audience does might actually be a relatively small contribution, even though they're the ones who might bring a process of inquiry to a close. So those are the main ways I want to use this co-production view to push against Gibson's objections. I think <coughs> if insights can be shared, they can be achievements that can be credited to multiple parties, these two objections don't get off the ground. However, um, how might you respond here? How might you try to push back? So one way you could try and push back is you could say, okay, we engage in all these group endeavors, but we don't always distribute the credit evenly. Sometimes we think, okay, I've actually made a bigger contribution than that person has, so perhaps I should get more credit than that other person who just kind of sat around in the group project, twirled their pen, and didn't really do very much. Um, so I think this is probably correct and might feed in to our understanding of insight through art. And here we can give some ground to Gibson. I think that's the worry that Gibson really wants to focus on, is cases where it seems like audiences should get the lion's share of credit because they've done so much work and artworks haven't really contributed very much. I think that is really what the wrong achievement objection is trying to get at. I'm happy to grant that. The thing that I think my view tries to do is tries to push against Gibson's view that then that's a reason to reject insight through art at all. I hope I give you some reasons to think that perhaps the credit for these insights can be distributed in other ways, in ways that might be more equitable, that might skew more towards the artwork. So, we can grant Gibson that particular worry. I've just reframed it for him usefully. Uh, now he's not my nemesis anymore, he's my best friend. Okay, here's another way to try and push back against this, this, this attempt to bring insight through art into our practices of art appreciation. So, you might have the following worry. If Richard III doesn't aim to contribute to our understanding of the 2016 election, it doesn't contribute to the audience's insights, right? It's not the artwork's achievement, it's just an achievement that the audience has realized. I realize I've written that in a way that is not entirely clear. <laughs> Let me try and say it like this. 
Okay, we've got audience who's inquiring in light of their engagement with Richard III. They arrive at insights into the 2016 election, but it might be hard to say that's what Shakespeare was also trying to do. That's not the purpose of his work. The purpose of his work is to try and say something about maybe medieval politics at best. So you might think if Shakespeare wasn't aiming to provide insights about that particular state of affairs, when the audience arrives at those insights and then turns back and says, yeah, and I can credit the artwork, we did this together, we both achieved this. You might say, it's not really an achievement on the part of the artwork, because achievements are usually understood to be things that we aim at, deploy our skills to try and arrive at, and the artwork just hasn't done that. It's been sort of like hostage to fortune. It's just fortuitous that it's managed to have a great effect on the audience's inquiry, but that's all the audience's achievement, not properly an achievement of the artwork. Okay, so let me try and respond to this in two ways. And I don't think either of these responses to be decisive, but I think they should show us this might not be as big a problem as it looks. So the first response is this. I'm taking this from Noel Carroll. So he puts forward the idea that amongst the things that artworks can try to do, they can try to be open-ended. They can try to get their audiences to be independent investigators, to urge them to explore the world, to try and do things for themselves. So if that's the case, and there's aspects of Shakespeare's artwork that are meant to be open-ended, then for the audience to respond in this way where they say, well, I'm going to use it to look into this particular state of affairs, well, that looks like it's a correct response to what the artwork is trying to do. And it's a correct response to the way Shakespeare is trying to impact inquiry. He's trying to give us something to respond to, but it's open-ended, and by closing it, by, by applying uh, what the artwork provides to a specific context, we are responding to the kinds of effects Shakespeare was hoping his artwork might have and left the end somewhat open. Okay, so maybe that's one way of responding. If you don't like that, here's a different way of responding, and I think this works for literary artworks, it might not work so well for other kinds of art. But in lots of analyses of literary artworks, a distinction is often drawn between the subject of the artwork and the theme of the artwork. And literary artworks are taken to try and give us insights into both the subject and the theme. So the subject of Richard III is perhaps the characters it's about, the particular events that happen in it, the location, the particular political system it's aiming at, and it gives us some insights into that. Actually, perhaps, probably not great insights, because Richard III falsifies all kinds of things about what Richard was actually like, but putting that to one side, Shakespeare also tries to give us insights into more general things, like the nature of power, the nature of tyranny, these more general themes and concepts that we take artworks to also engage with. Now, I think these more general themes, often, at least in this case, have had a pretty good career of being transhistorical, right? We find still issues to do with tyranny, issues to do with the manipulation of political power, instantiated in our own time. So the subject matter has changed, but the themes might stay the same. We need to understand these general concepts still to understand the specific events that we are encountering in 2016. So if Shakespeare was trying to get us to better understand these more general concepts 
And if these more general concepts are pretty big and open-ended in themselves, and the audience needs to understand these more general concepts in order to get a grasp on what's actually happening in 2016, responding to Shakespeare's uh, exploration of the theme of political enablement, the theme of tyranny, might help us to understand the 2016 US election. Shakespeare is making a genuine contribution to our understanding of this event, and we are respecting what the artwork was trying to do. Okay, so let me draw this to a close. Brief summary of where we've been. I began by drawing a distinction between insight in art and insight through art. I presented a problem you can raise with insight through art that it doesn't seem to mesh with certain accounts of art appreciation. And then I've tried to suggest that we can co-produce the kinds of cognitive achievements that the cognitivist wants to focus on, and that when we do this, we can appreciate not only our own contributions as audience members, but appreciate what the artwork has contributed as well. Thanks, I'll leave it there.